Hi, this is Chris Smith. I'm the author of The Conversion Code, Stop Chasing Leads and Start Attracting Clients, second edition, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Chris Smith to talk about the second edition of his book, The Conversion Code, Stop Chasing Leads and Start Attracting Clients, published by Wiley. Chris Smith is the co-founder of Curator, an Inc. 500 fastest-growing business, and he is one of the four best marketers under 40, according to the American Marketing Association. His book, The Conversion Code, is taught at colleges like John Hopkins University, and he's been a guest lecturer at NYU. Chris used the blueprint in The Conversion Code to quickly grow his company to eight figures in annual recurring revenue without raising any venture capital. His work has been featured in Adweek, Forbes, Fortune, and many other publications. Previously, Chris worked for two billionaires, a billion-dollar publicly traded company, and a startup that was acquired for nine figures. And, interesting fact, given Chris's experience working for billionaires, he's now in the running to be the CEO of Twitter. Chris, congratulations on the second edition of The Conversion Code, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Douglas. I'm excited. I, I don't want that job. <laughs> okay. Okay. He's not really He's not really uh, in the running for uh, CEO of uh, Twitter. But uh, one interesting fact that I recall, you were, you've been a Hollywood extra, right? I was, yeah. I lived in LA for a couple of years and had a chance to be on shows like Buffy, uh, which pretty much most people, at least my age, know. The Vampire uh, Slayer. That's right. Uh-huh. And uh, a couple other fun things, Romy and Michelle... Uh, Drew Carey show. It it was a lot of fun to kind of see that industry from the inside out. Okay. Well, you know, I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but I think that you bear a striking resemblance to the actor uh, Tim Robbins, who starred in the movie Shawshank Redemption. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Yeah. Well, he's so much older than me that I'm now insanely embarrassed that you said that. So I, I reject I reject your comparison, Douglas. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sorry. It's okay. Well, please forgive me and, and let's just end on this note. Get busy living or get busy dying. Now you say people have told you that? Never. Never. Okay. No. No. I I have people tell me often that I, that I look like people, but never, never him. No. A younger Tim Robbins. I, there I just, we go. Now we're getting... No, there. no, no. Not the current one. You look yes. like a younger Tim Robbins. I got you. From Shawshank Redemption, which was like a, 
oh gosh, 20, 25 years ago. Now, I have actually seen you in person. I saw you some years back at one of the inbound conferences, mm-hmm. and I was walking. I think you had you all had a booth there or something like that, and uh, I walked by, and I thought, first off, I thought, oh, wow, Tim Robbins is here. But then I, I realized it was you. I saw which, where you were, and I, I was going to go by and um, you know maybe get my picture with you. This is after I'd interviewed you the first time in 2016, and there must have been a line of about 15 people waiting to talk to you. And I thought, you know what? I am not going to get in the way of Chris Smith closing 15 more customers. Yes. Yeah. I was signing books, which was awesome. And and I had a session called the Billion Dollar Boiler Room. Uh, and it was about my experience in the cubicle calling leads. And it was amazing because it was all marketing people, agency owners, uh, there's not as many salespeople at inbound as you would think, right? Right. But they don't know how to sell. They don't know how to pitch. They're terrible at these conversations. And they frankly leave a lot of money on the table because of that. Whether you're a photographer, a marketing agency, uh, a lot of times creatives are not closers. <laughs> right, right, right. So we first talked about this book, like I mentioned, in 2016. And that was mm-hmm. episode 61. So this is going to be episode 383. So that means that Chris Smith comes on the Marketing Book Podcast every 322 episodes. Mm -hmm. So I've already got you penciled in for the third edition, and that would be episode 705, uh, Mm -hmm. July 14th, 2028. Well, go ahead and mark your calendars at home. And actually, that's Bastille Day, so uh, Mm -hmm. for the listeners in France. So I'm just giving you you something to look forward to there, uh, Chris. I'll be back. Okay, great, great. Well, you know, this seems like the kind of book that, that would need to be updated uh, on, on a regular basis. Uh, just like um, David Merriman Scott's book, he was on last week, mm-hmm. it was the eighth edition of the New Rules in Marketing PR, and quite a bit changed from the first your first edition to this, this second one. I got to say that this is my favorite kind of book to be on the Marketing Podcast because it's really one of the best intersections of sales and marketing uh, I've ever had on the show. And so when I found out about this second edition, I was so excited that you agreed to to come back on. And I, you know, I like to have books that are relevant. Like this is a marketing book. Is it still going to be relevant for salespeople? If it's a sales book, is it going to be helpful for, for marketing people? And so, you know, when it comes to sales and marketing, <laughs> you seem completely ambidextrous, you know, it's just because you've done, uh, you've done both. Yeah, I think that's sort of my secret sauce. And then also sold software and grew up with technology in my lap. And so very comfortable with that component too. But you're right. It's it's amazing. Uh, one of the things I say in the book is that if marketing people had to call the leads they generate, they'd fire themselves. Yes, I love that. I love yeah. that. And, and if salespeople were, were in charge of generating all the leads, companies would go out of business. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the sooner that relationship heals, the better. And 85% of respondents said that, that that is the number one opportunity for upside in their business currently yes. is the alignment between marketing and sales. Mm-hmm. So I store, sort of stay in the middle there during the tug of war. And I love it because I'm very good at both. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I know that I am. And the, the when I did both were sort of decades apart. Uh, you know, I was in the boiler room, but sales doesn't change nearly as quickly as marketing. 
And so that I think is where, you know, I kind of picked up that skill, you know, as a young lad and Mm -hmm. it it just sort of put the 10,000 hours in probably 20,000 hours in whatever it takes to become an expert. And then now the last decade and a half has been social YouTube, TikTok, you know, the, the, the sort of digital world. And so I came into that world as the guy from the cubicle. And so I wasn't really that excited about things like reach, followers, likes. From day one, if it didn't create legitimate business opportunities, it it wasn't really that interesting for me. So content marketing for me is about how can I be so good at it that it goes far but then how can it be so on brand and how can it attract people so that they want to hire me? And it's actually incredibly easy. You just give away everything you know as passionately as you can and people start banging down your door to work with you versus what's happening in most boiler rooms right now, which is leads are chasing people that don't want to be chased. Yeah. So one thing I want to, uh, warn the audience of it. Years ago, I was on a panel discussion up in Washington, D.C., and I've told this story uh, in years past, but we, we, I was up there and we were talking about a lot of the things that, you know, many of the things that are in your book and, and other issues. It was a more general marketing discussion. Mm-hmm. And this fellow came up to me afterwards and he said, hey, you know, I really appreciate you serving on the panel. I, was, I, I, I agreed with everything you were saying, and you really had me there until you started talking about religion. Mm-hmm. And I said, what in the world are you talking about? I wasn't talking about a religion. He goes, no, you kept talking about conversions mm-hmm. and uh, being converted. And mm-hmm. I was like, no, 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 that's like a, a, a term. So uh, just so the listener knows, and I've read this book, there's no religion in here, okay? So <laughs> no, there's even a few curse words, so we <laughs> yes. should do the full disclaimer. <laughs> that's but right. You, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think generationally... Uh, especially that word maybe has a different connotation, but yeah, lead conversion, it, you know, it's important to me to define it because it is a new bucket. It is not something that really it's probably, if you threw it in Google trends, it's one of those ones that just wasn't being searched and now is fairly common mm-hmm. because if you ask any company, you know, could you guys improve your lead conversion? Do you need help converting leads? People, you know, jump off the page and say yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at one point it was tempting to write, you know, the lead generation code or something of the like. But yeah, no, no religion. Uh, and I apologize for any uh, confusion that would cause. Yeah, actually, you know what? There is a little bit of religion now that I think about it, because at the very end you uh, mm-hmm. talk about there's so much you cover in the book, and we can't talk about all, but you even said one objection somebody has said to you over your long sales career is, I, I need to pray on it. Correct. And then you even had a response for that. <laughs> well, I, yeah, it's tricky, and that was sort of the fundamentals, right? When yeah. you have a framework that you can run an objection through, then it can take you off guard, but you can still at least uh, give it a fair shot. Yeah. And yeah, so, you know, sometimes, and actually I taught a class last week where the same thing had happened to someone. Sometimes people need to pray. Uh, it's usually a smokescreen objection, if I'm being honest, but it is something that for some people is important. And especially, you know, I've been doing mortgages and I help real estate agents that sell houses and curator is a, a fairly expensive investment. And so I think it's more likely that you need to pray about one of those than yeah. uh, pray about which CRM you should choose. Yes. 
Okay. So I just wanted to read from a couple things in the uh, introduction, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. You're right. When I originally wrote the conversion code in 2016, I was confident it would be well-received. I did not, however, expect what happened to happen. I could have never gotten into Johns Hopkins University, so you can imagine how it felt when I learned they were using the conversion code in their Marketing Your Startup course. I could have never afforded to go to NYU, so you can imagine how it felt when they asked me to give a guest lecture about the conversion code for their e-commerce and digital marketing students. I could have never dreamed... Growing up in a small town with cow pastures, chicken farms, and orange groves that people in Japan, Brazil, Russia, Turkey, and Poland would know who I am because my book was translated into their languages. I could have never pictured when I was cold calling leads on a landline from my cubicle that I would teach inside sales at two software companies that ended up getting acquired for a quarter of a billion dollars. I could have never thought, as I was failing out of business school, (laughs) that the American Marketing Association would name me one of the four best marketers under 40. I even had to wear makeup for that photo shoot. All of these accolades and experiences are thanks to you. You are the ones who bought and read and reviewed and shared and suggested the conversion code to a colleague. You're the ones who helped to get it featured on Forbes, Fortune, Adweek, and USA Today. You are the ones who helped me land bucket list speaking gigs at HubSpot's Inbound and with YPO chapters. I will be eternally grateful, and I do not take it for granted. In fact, I felt like I owed you a lot more than this poorly disguised humble brag. So I went back to the lab and rewrote the book from the ground up. It's the conversion code 2.0, or as my publisher prefers me to call it, the second edition completely revised and updated. This book is jam-packed with new tips, tricks, tools, templates, platforms, research data, and best practices. I'm especially excited about the Do This Right Now challenges I've sprinkled throughout. These are quick and easy-to-do marketing or sales tactics that you can do and get results from while you read. I'm sure every author says that their second edition is better than the first. Well, I'm saying it too. I took a critical and humbling look at every word in the first book and immediately knew I could do it better, much better, 11 times better. But let's face it, any book about digital marketing, social media, lead generation, or lead conversion gets quickly outdated. What worked yesterday may not work tomorrow. This stuff changes in the blink of an eye. And then... Uh, One other part, uh, you write, uh, the conversion code is a step-by-step guide to marketing and sales that will grow your business faster. The outcome for those who follow it is the highest lead conversion rate possible. Doing what is outlined in this book will get you better website traffic, a large email list, higher quality leads, and more social media followers. Most important, you will close more sales and make more money. And... Whether you're a seasoned pro or brand new, the conversion code is your guide to growth if you're in marketing or sales. So, Chris, you, you, you've touched on this, but say more about your marketing philosophy of stop chasing leads. It's funny, my co-founder, curator, Jimmy, he was speaking at a conference in San Francisco and I was watching on the live stream, and this is probably a year and a half into the book coming out and Uh, accomplishing some of those things that you just mentioned, which still just feels so crazy to hear. But he was doing a class on marketing because he's never really been in sales. And he was talking about sort of like the follow-up component. And he kind of started almost like bashing the book in the sense of 
Nobody wants to call somebody six or seven times. Nobody wants to get called six or seven times. Nobody wants to have to drop everything and call a lead within one minute or else your conversion rate goes down. Nobody wants to follow up with people for six months or 12 months until they buy or die. That sucks. (laughs) You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) And and he made kind of this compelling case. So I was sort of equally mad. And then I kind of questioned, why is this bothering me? And the answer is because he was right. And so that's when I realized the conversion code one was sort of the best way to do it up until then. And that largely required aggressive inside salespeople calling 100 leads a day to have a couple good conversations to hopefully find a customer. The world I hope exists and has existed for me for the whole curator journey and with the book and everything else that I've worked on is that I don't have to call 100 leads. I don't have to chase people down. I have people chasing me down. I have done that through sharing my expertise on social media freely without charging for a decade. And so my, my philosophy on not chasing leads is that I just make sure that when I create marketing, is it something that's going to cause somebody to want to work with me? I'll give you a couple of examples of the things that have gotten me the most customers, my book and my podcast. I did a book that took me a decade to learn and a year to write. When you have a book, people look at you as the expert and they bang your door down to work with you. Same thing when you do a speech at a big conference, they line up because they want to work with you. We did the water cooler, this beautiful podcast where we interviewed every influencer in the real estate industry and we taught all these really cool marketing classes And anybody that would watch that and listen to it week after week would understand how good we were at our job, A, really smart, that's important, but also very relatable because we, you can only be who you are. So people were drawn to our personalities because nobody wants to listen to a boring podcast. Nobody wants to watch a live stream that sucks. But we weren't just fluff. We were kind of meat on the bone. We called it help, not hype. Mm-hmm. So that to me is sort of when I think about the marketing that I'm doing, what is the end result of it? The end result is that I don't get very many leads because A, the right people know who should reach out to me. B, I charge a lot, you know, and C, I don't want a lot of leads. I want a lot of email subscribers and followers. But like with the book launch, I think I have three leads and all three of them are going to convert. Like that's mm-hmm. a better reality. <laughs> yes. Yes. And in the book, you talk quite a bit about uh, some of the misperceptions people have about quality uh, versus quantity. We could mm-hmm. certainly uh, get to. I wanted to uh, pull out a few things from the book that might uh, upset people mm-hmm. <laughs> or that mm-hmm. surprised me. Sure. And I wanted to ask you to explain what you mean when you write, you know, we talk about you. You talk in the book a lot about mm-hmm. tools, various various types of tools that you have to have. Technology is important, but you also said you believe automation mm-hmm. is overrated mm-hmm. and is being used as a crutch. Explain. Well, think about it. You get a lead, they go on a drip campaign, and you know it does its job, and you know people never update those campaigns, and the salespeople don't necessarily follow up when those campaigns are triggered or opened, and. You know, so it's it's sort of, yeah, it's set it and forget it. But if people don't think that there's a cost to set it and forget it, they're naive. Mm-hmm. 
because if you're going to automate everything, you know, you, you, I can't automate a book. I can't automate a podcast. You see what I'm saying? So like, if you want to automate the distribution of good stuff, I would be a huge fan of you doing that. But in most cases, people are using automation so that they don't have to do something manually. But I can understand why they want to, Douglas, because again, they're generating a lot of leads that are low quality. When you know that 95 of your leads kind of suck out of every 100, it you almost have to automate that or you're a fool. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, whether it's a chat bot on your website, there was a study that I put into the book. They said, when you want to reach out to a business, when it's time to communicate with a business, do you prefer a human, a chatbot, or a hybrid? 3% of people said chatbot. <laughs> like, so, so 97% of humans don't want your automated chatbot. So mm-hmm. that's what I mean by automation is overrated because when it's time to work with someone, That's when the human matters the most. I'll give you an example. People that engage with a live chat person and have a back and forth conversation with a live human are 2.8 times more likely to convert. But a lot of times what salespeople tell me is these little chat bots and AIs that are trying to fake conversations for me, they don't do that good of a job anyway yet. They'll probably get better over time. And they actually kind of bother some of the best leads. They're sort of unconverting. (laughs) Right. Yeah. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flipped the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. So... I think I heard recently that one of the biggest mistakes was from one of the books that's been on the show. They they talk about one of the biggest problems with marketing automation is the word automation. There's also mm-hmm. this misperception that you don't have to hire people and that it's like you're buying a toolbox, but you actually have to hire someone to swing the hammer mm-hmm. and, and actually use it. So interesting. So the first section of the book is it, the book is in three parts. First section, how to do marketing that attracts high quality leads. Mm-hmm. I think we could just stop there. That's like the most imp- <laughs> compelling thing to, to listeners. The second uh, section of the book is how to find and follow up with the highest quality leads that are the most likely to convert. Mm-hmm. And the third section is what you call the billion-dollar uh, sales script. And we're going to mm-hmm. touch on a few things from each of those. So let's, let's start with how to do marketing that attracts high-quality leads. Talk about the biggest challenge you think that is facing marketing and sales now. 
Well, there's a lot of challenges. I would say one of the biggest ones is that people hate marketing people. People hate spam. People hate salespeople. They don't trust them. They're one of the least trusted one of the least trusted jobs by far. Yes, people- but Chris, I, I'm going to I'm gonna have to. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to pull a Kanye on you. I'm going to let you finish. But in the book, it shows that marketers and salespeople are uh, trusted by three percent. But politicians are 1%. So to those listeners out there, we are three times more trusted than... Yeah, there's somebody on the totem pole <laughs> below you. Yeah, that's Car right. Car salesmen, lobbyists, politicians, and stockbrokers. Yeah. Congratulations. Okay, well, I'm let's sorry. Let's look at the people ahead of them. <laughs> Journalists, fake news, trusted more than salespeople. Doctor, like fake COVID, trusted more than salespeople. That's not my stance. I'm just saying, Yeah. you know, there's a lot of lawyers, by lawyers, the way. Lawyers, that one hurt. 12%. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It was funny because people said, man, only 48% of people trust firefighters. I, I think it is actually important to, to understand that 50% of people don't trust anybody. That's what this survey says. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Yes. I'm, I'm feeling better already. The healing is beginning. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's a big problem. The other problem is people don't answer their phones. 90% of people don't answer their phones anymore. 30 to 40% of people that are basically my age, 30 to 50, are online constantly, but they'd rather text than talk. Mm -hmm. And like, I'll give you one big, big change that people should be thinking about. Your email list is going to become a text message list if you know what you're doing and if you're smart about things. But the way that you nurture and send text messages is completely different than the way that you would do email marketing. That is a seismic shift in the messaging because the method is different. Yes, and it reminds me, now that you say that, of like a print ad versus an outdoor billboard. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of times companies are treating them, the development of both is the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and email and text are, you could argue, just as different. Mm-hmm. They're completely different, and that's going to be a lesson most people learn the hard way. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Well, I got a quote from uh, page nine here. Again, I- I'm trying to make this controversial, Chris. Please. So you say, there's a good chance that you have heard, possibly even a nauseating number of times, that content is king. What isn't talked about enough, though, is who the queen is. Do tell. Yeah, design is queen. I, I mean, the way people, this is the science behind this is fascinating. So, number one is that people make a judgment in 50 milliseconds. That's how quickly the brain processes what they see and, and tells itself if they like what they see or not. 50 milliseconds. 94% of first impressions when people visit a website are design related. Mm hmm. And then what happens is, you know, people's trust falls off the charts when when something's unattractive or it's complicated or so if you think about like if you go to Tiffany and Company, if you go to Louis Vuitton, if you go to Balenciaga, if you go to the conversioncode.com, the reason I'm putting my brand, the reason I'm building the brand I'm building, the way I'm building it is because I'm a, I'm selling a luxury item not the book, but the things that people, you know, hire me to do for them. I'm not cheap. Mm-hmm. And so I want people to feel that through the design that I do. Mm-hmm. I'm very progressive and forward thinking. I'm not going to bring people old school ideas. 
I want that to be conveyed in the design of the things that I put out into the marketplace. So content is king. You are way, way better off to just grab your phone and just start doing stuff. But who is your audience? For me, I'm trying to charge people thousands of dollars a month to hire my marketing agency. I'm trying to get companies to pay me tens of thousands of dollars to give a speech or dollars to do a workshop. If I'm going to do that, I can't just rely on the Ty Lopez special. I can't just rely on the selfie video in my garage that that shows, you know, my money and my cars behind me. So it's, and by the way, what was he trying to sell on the back of that? $50, $100 information products. So it, it, there's it, there's times, Douglas, where something works better when it looks worse, right? It sort of, quote unquote, performs better. But I'm not willing to sacrifice that because I'm playing a long game too. I'm not desperate for business. That puts you in a good spot. So design is queen and it, it's a beautiful kingdom, if you will, when both are killing it. I give an example in the book. I never got more than like a thousand page views in one day on my ugly WordPress do-it-yourself blog I built. As soon as I hired a designer, I got like 3,000, 4,000 page views the <laughs> next right. day. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. Because it, it's not just design, it's user experience. Yeah. It's the yeah. interface. It's all of those things. So yes, your the number one thing is to execute content regularly, but as soon as you sort of see that it's working or you enjoy it, polish it, put some lipstick on the pig. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you write, uh, sadly, I still see far too many companies that have a website so poorly designed that they are willing to admit they wouldn't even hire themselves based on it. Mm-hmm. Love it. So jumping ahead, you write, the more content I have created, the more cash I have collected. Can you talk about the importance of blogging? Correct. It's not just blogging. It's video, it's blogging, it's stories, it's Instagram. I started off doing just videos because I thought I was a terrible writer. I kind of went from videos to email marketing and then started blogging on top of that. But the if you just ask yourself, you take a step back and don't try to figure out if it's working. If you just say, since I've started creating content, how has my business grown? Forget attribution. If the amount of content you're putting out is sort of growing and so is your business, there is a direct correlation. I call that use your gut and look at your growth. Mm-hmm. Forget your Google Analytics for a second. So, but... The other thing, and this is something people don't necessarily want to hear, people are not really putting out anything in most cases nowadays that's sort of long form enough to make them a thought leader. It's just all these little quips and and that stuff works great. I do a ton of that stuff too. But if you want to get hired, one of the examples is we have a client in Vancouver. His name's Dan Wordle. He's a real estate agent in Vancouver. When COVID hit, I saw that he had written this article saying that here's what the impact's going to be on the BC housing market because of COVID. And it was like, wow. And if you went through it, you're like, man, this guy knows his stuff. 
the, you know, there were visuals, there were charts, there was graphs. He had an opinion. He made predictions. He looked at the past and how that could help guide what may happen. He made it clear that no one knows for sure. Like I read one blog post, Douglas, and in my mind, I said, I have to send any referral I ever get to him. Clearly, that's the power of blogging. Yeah, you're right. Uh, businesses that blog get 55% more website visitors than businesses that don't. And uh, also, marketers who have prioritized blogging are 13 times more likely to enjoy positive ROI, and 79% of companies that have a blog report a positive ROI for inbound marketing. There's a, a great study uh, by HubSpot. Maybe I can't. I didn't check the f- footnotes, so that may have been where some of these came from. They have a great benchmarks uh, study they put out. But the other thing at the end of this chapter, I just loved it because I am I really think I'm going to borrow this next time I hear somebody who's kind of, you know, saying they don't have time for this sort of thing. I think it's, uh, it's not going to help you, right? The next time you tell yourself that you do not have time to blog, just remember that what you really are not taking the time for is improved lead generation and conversion. And you go on to write the websites that get the most traffic leads and have the highest ROI are the ones that emphasize blogging. So let's jump ahead to uh, social media. You write that a vital component of the conversion code is social media. If your goal is to get as many clicks and leads as possible, the data makes a compelling argument that you should define social media as Facebook plus everything else. Explain what you mean when you say it's Facebook plus everything else. Well, you know, Google and YouTube are in their own separate bucket and they've been dominant forever. And now Facebook and Instagram are the other bucket. And between those four channels, that's where all the money goes. That's where all the clicks and leads come from at scale. It doesn't mean TikTok and it doesn't mean Twitter and LinkedIn and some of these other things can't make a big impact too. It's just that the the traffic... Most sales organizations need lots of leads. There's only a few places that have scale. I heard somebody say, you know, Google is Facebook and Google Images is Instagram. So I just want people to understand that social media is the internet. The only real acquisition channels on the internet are search and social, right? Mm -hmm. Search, and for most cases, SEO and pay-per-click, people outsource. They're happy to do so. So yeah, like what's left? What's left is social media. The 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 place to get the most traffic, and I'll tell you why, because TikTok and Instagram were built and are built around not clicking links. <laughs> Facebook was built around link clicks. People go there, same with Twitter, right? You go there and you click on a lot of links because you're consuming a lot of content on both of those two platforms. So in most cases, and I say Facebook's not as cool as it used to be, and like, it, it, but it, it is a bad business decision for most people to not run Facebook ads, to not use Instagram a lot. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Facebook is greatly underused as a quality lead source. And I, I'm a guy that's deactivated my Facebook account. And it's almost like you addressed it when you said Zuck, Zuckerberg, He's not perfect. Facebook has made some terrible decisions over the years. Just don't make one too 
by ignoring the dominant player, regardless of your personal feelings about how they run their business, or even if you deleted Facebook and don't log in anymore, they have by far the most scale and should not be ignored. They have the most potential clicks and leads. It is a bad business decision not to advertise there. So I want to jump ahead to uh, something on page 74. We talk about ROI and you talk about setting budgets and you you remind folks that the average business invests 13% of their revenue back into their marketing and but you know there's always different ways that people are trying to determine what their marketing budget should be and you write uh, a less scientific way to determine your budget would be to ask yourself what is a monthly budget that i can afford to lose but commit to for a year to see how this goes. And uh, you're right, if you need an ROI immediately, you're going to end up quitting before the plan starts to click. Talk about that. That was an interesting um, an interesting idea. Like, what can you afford to lose and, and not kill you? Correct. Yeah, I, I think that's important. And it's going to be a different answer for every single person. I mean, as you know, for decades, businesses have wasted money on marketing and advertising that didn't work. I'm not asking them to do anything they haven't been doing forever. What I would do, though, is I would have 20%. So you're saying 13% of the revenue goes to marketing. Of the 100% of that, I'm going to take 20% and I'm going to spend it on stuff that I do not care if it works, if there's attribution, if it's a sustainable channel. That is play money, Vegas money. Mm Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to spend 80% of my budget on the stuff that's sort of tried and true. That could be everything from direct mail to traditional advertising to past client parties. Like I'm, I'm not as concerned with what that bucket is. But if you want to eliminate FOMO and if you want to stay relevant and if you want to take advantage of emerging platforms and opportunities, I think you have to do that at the sort of budget level. So if my budget is 5,000 per month, Right now, I would have a thousand a month, 20%. And I would be putting that into things like TikTok ads and Spotify ads and streaming ads on Hulu. And I would do that just to see what happens. And the other thing I would do is I would go to every other social channel that I use and I would show off my cool thing I was doing because that is what keeps a brand relevant and interesting. And so I think it's fine to do that. Yeah, you know, there was another part in here about ROI that I had the same sense. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about this. You're right. The truth is that every client I work with who is getting a significant ROI tracks it religiously. The clients who don't feel like they're getting an ROI aren't tracking or following up properly. What it made me think of is sometimes, uh, you know, a company will say, well, what's going to be the ROI on this? Or they'll ask Mm -hmm. some question in that direction, and I'll... I often ask, well, talk to me about how you're currently measuring ROI, crickets. Yeah, that's the best question <laughs> to ask. So it, it spoke to me. It's, it got me a little bit emotionally charged up there, Chris Smith. Yeah, it should. The, but what I was getting at there is that the people that do this stuff properly and that track it are winning big in most cases. So people that have an established lead to revenue system in place generate 50% more revenue than businesses that don't. Mm -hmm. So when you do get it ultimately dialed in, it becomes impossible to ignore 
that it's working. Uh, it's just that it, it is a lot of work to architect it, track it. Uh, it, it requires a lot of tools and uh, thought processes that are outside of a lot of people's skill set. So I understand that it's tricky, but I'm just telling people I've worked with thousands of businesses. When people track and when people follow up, people win because what happens is now they're measuring things. <laughs> so what happens is now they can turn the needle on things that do bad or good. And, and so it constantly gets better. When you're not measuring it, you're constantly guessing, but don't feel bad because 25% of businesses have no idea if social media is working and 50% of businesses do not have a social media strategy in place. You know, the secret to getting ahead is getting started. Don't uh, frustrate yourself if you don't feel like you can completely measure it today. Just get started. And you'll start iterating, and then ultimately you'll start. I, my sense, people start to feel better when they're able to do more of what's working and less of what's not working. So, explain what retargeting is uh, for for those that are new to it, and and the importance of it uh, as it relates to cracking the conversion code. It's not a buzzword anymore. Mm -hmm. It, it, when you invest in content and advertising and social media, you are going to generate a boatload more traffic than leads. That's just the way websites work, you mm -hmm. know? And so when you do all of this insanely hard work to, to do that, you are fairly crazy to only follow up with the people that fill out a form because it's such a small percentage. Yes. 97, 98, 99% of your website traffic, they saw something they liked. They did click through. They did visit. By the way, they may have visited very specific pages that show purchase intent. But the, the cost of retargeting is so inexpensive and relevant and effective that it's, again, it's one of these things where it's work, Douglas. It's, it's not that easy to set up ad roll. It's not. And to, you got to set it up for desktop retargeting with banner ads of 18 different sizes. You got to set it up for IG retargeting, Facebook retargeting. It's, it's a little complex to architect, but it's insanely valuable because now people see you everywhere. And now it's not just phone calls and text messages and emails that are chasing leads. It's marketing that's chasing leads. And that gives you a better chance at staying in front of them. So I, I just think people have to do it. The number of searches that happen for your brand within a month of somebody seeing your retargeting is through the roof. Right. So uh, there are certain listeners to the podcast, I, I refer to them as thrusters, and that means they've suddenly been thrust into a marketing role. Uh, like they might've been head of sales for years or an, an engineer, and they're trying to still learn about marketing. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like, where do I even start? What, what books should I read? So just, if you could explain how this works, somebody visits your website and you leave a, uh, a cookie mm -hmm. with them. And then you're, they're then able to see a bunch of ads, uh, a pixel. They then are able to see a bunch of ads uh, afterwards. Yeah. Well, that's if they're not from Europe. <laughs> so the GDPR makes right. you pop up that message. And if they don't say accept for that cookie you just mentioned, then you're not going to track them. Right, and you're not right. going to pixel them and you're not going to retarget them and it doesn't matter. So so yeah, it's it's a line of code that you install 
so that when somebody visits, it can basically cookie their browser and then anything else they do on their phone or on their browser, you can then show them ads. It happens to us all the time. You know, you go to Amazon, you see what you're looking at in an ad. You visit a website, you see it in an ad. It it does happen all the time. Uh, By the way, if conversion makes people think about religion, what does thruster make people think about? (laughs) Rockets? What I mean is they've been thrust into a role. I understand what you mean. I'm just saying this isn't Boogie Nights, Douglas. Let's let's be careful with that language. Well, okay, we'll be careful with the language, but there is uh I have to I can't resist. I don't know if you saw it on LinkedIn, but I, I posted a picture of one of the graphs in your book that showed that uh lead conversions increase eight percent when the lead and the salesperson both cuss. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of my favorite statistics. There was there's a company called Gong, and they did the largest study of you know recorded sales calls in the history of the world, and that was one of the little kind of fun nuggets that they pulled out of it. Yeah, it, it did bother some people on LinkedIn. The you know the idea that it's unprofessional is a very valid thing for people to to think. What I was trying to point out is simply that when you feel a bond and when you feel sort of genuine rapport, when you become friends with your customers, they want to work with you more. And I I would say that both parties cursing, unless there's a fight, by the way, unless they're fighting, (laughs) but like, you know, both parties cursing kind of means that you're buddies and that there's a relationship there. Right. So, and not everybody would curse, but you kind of get the point there. I will be honest, like this is something that I'm actually passionate about because I was one of the first people in my industry for sure, maybe like in general, to to sort of curse on my podcast and on stage. And I, I can tell you that I took massive heat for making that decision. I can also tell you how many messages I get and how many calls I've had with people that want to work with me that are like, dude, you fucking rock. <laughs> like that's the first thing they say. Uh-huh. So so it, it, I think I almost think of it as there are things that are polarizing. Politics is too. That doesn't stop people from talking about that mm. and ruining relationships. <laughs> you, you know, so yeah, like I, I definitely think we've sort of turned the corner a little bit. The president curses, uh, you know, all co- Gary V is everybody's favorite personality. Yeah. He's, he's a cursing machine and he's addressed this because what cursing means in the content sort of lens, not the sales call lens, is that you're trying to be the way that you are when the camera's not on. That's mm. all people are doing. And and, and you can kind of sniff it out. My wife said one time, because at one point, Douglas, I was trying to cuss on purpose because I was like, I knew the audience was like waiting for the F-bomb. Uh-huh. And so it, we'd be like 10 minutes into a show and I'd start getting antsy like I was going through withdrawal <laughs> that I needed to curse. And it was like, and then it it was, and for the first time it felt forced. So my wife gave me great advice. She said, people don't watch your show and like it because you cuss. They like it because you will. (laughs) That's interesting. Well, let's jump ahead to um, the second section here. I want to ask you, this is, it starts to get even more into the, to the sales world. Can you talk about the importance of speed? Uh, in, in terms of following up with leads, as well as the you know like the best days and times and 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 how, how many times uh, folks should follow up, it's actually 
more than I think most people realize. Yeah. One of the things I uncovered in the first book is that there's this window between minute zero and minute five that is insanely more valuable than minute 30 or minute 60. Mm -hmm. The sad truth is that 57% of leads aren't followed up with for at least one week. Oh, and the number of leads that are actually followed up with in that under five minute window is like 0.1%. So we've, we have sort of failed at speed to lead, but with the new book, I said, well, let's get back to like a normal world. Let's just assume people can't do that. And I started looking at what happens if you call after an hour versus after a day. Mm. And what happens if you call after a day versus after a week, right? So I sort of wanted to give people permission. Like, I don't want people to have this mindset that like, if I don't call them within the first five minutes, I may as well not call them. Uh That is a huge mistake because even if it's 30, 60, 24 hours in, it still helps compared to waiting, (laughs) Or not following up at all. Well, that's a big problem too. But it's just sort of, if you're going to follow up, so it's sort of like, you know, sales is all about having a positive attitude and being enthusiastic and being kind of a go-getter. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't look at it like, man, it's it's been an hour. I, I'm going to call this lead, but I doubt they'll pick up. I would look at it and say, man, it's been an hour. I got a way better chance of them picking up than I do tomorrow. Yes. This section, this other part really... I. Again, it warmed the cockles of my heart because, you know, in the marketing agency business over the years, you, you hear people complaining, you know, about the leads, you know. Mm-hmm. The leads are weak. And so when we finally got into this business of, you know, mar- uh, marketing automation software and CRMs, and we could go in there and we could say, well, now, okay, what, what about all these leads here? What, what happened then? And they go, oh, yeah, we didn't, we didn't call them. <laughs> and yet you want to yell at us. We're not helping to generate the leads. And you write, leads are meaningless if someone does not work them and follow up with them in a systematized, strategic, and repeatable way. It amazes me that people are willing to spend a small fortune on leads, but then don't hedge their bets and spend nearly as much time, money, or resources on converting them. And really, that was very much what the whole second section uh, of the book is about. So, I want to jump to uh, another section. Uh, it was actually on page 141. It was very, uh, very interesting, kind of like when you were talking about text versus emails. And that's uh, when you write, everyone loves to text except businesses. You do not need to ask yourself it if it is appropriate for a business to text someone. It is inappropriate for them not to. Mm. Why? why? Why do you say that? Because it's the preferred method of communication by every generation. You know, three to eight X more preferred than phone calls across every age group. How do you explain so, the how do you explain the the hesitancy of businesses to want to do it? Is they just not catching up or change is hard, okay. number one. Number yeah. two, a lot of them have phone numbers that you probably can't even text. That's why when some twenty-six year old or some twenty-two year old sees your phone number on your website in text and says, hey, can I check out this listing? That's why one third of people never get a reply when they proactively text a business. That's sad. So people are proving that like, we're up for this. (laughs) (laughs) Like we're up for this and you're not. And I think that part of it is 
because historically, you know, the text message, you know, channel was for friends and family. But at this point, people don't want to talk. They want to text. That should be crystal clear. I would almost put that into the same bucket as retargeting. Mm -hmm. You know, you should no longer be debating or figuring it out. You need to be embracing it. I would actually lean into it. We have a client in Las Vegas named Joe Herrera. He's great. He he did Facebook ads for years where it was your traditional link, click, landing page, register. Now he says, hey, he does the same thing. Instead of the link, he says, text this number for the price and pictures. And now every person that does that, he has their phone number. And then he goes back and forth with them via text. And if they're not even kind of like legit, they may never go onto the calendar or into the CRM. So (laughs) it's just crazy to me that there's two sides of a coin where one side thinks it's inappropriate to do something, just like they thought Facebook was stupid and just like they thought cell phones were stupid, just like they think NFTs are stupid. I get it. (laughs) I get it. But on the other side, you know, people have 192 times more emails than text messages. It's a wide open channel to get right. Smart businesses are leaning into it as a preferred option in their messaging. But you mentioned email. You write, if you heard that email marketing was dead, find a new guru. Explain why you say that. Well, anyone that does digital marketing understands that email is more effective than advertising for conversion. So for client acquisition, the thing that touches the person is an email, maybe several over the course of a couple different years, depending on your product or service. So email marketing is alive and well. The problem is, People send terrible emails. People don't send emails worth opening. So the the people that do that kill it, like you couldn't get rid of their email tool if you tried. I'll give you an example. I know you know Jay Bear. Mm -hmm. So so I saw Jay Bear basically the other day saying, hey, my new channel is email. I know it's old school. Don't make fun of me, but that's where I'm doing stuff now. You know, so, so I just think that like, the people that get it understand, I did not sell thousands of books for the launch because of ads. I sold them largely through emails to the people that I had already built trust with and context with over time. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I happily pay my email bill. You know, I can't wait to pay it. But I use it. I'm smart with it. I segment stuff. I personalize stuff. I make sure stuff's super valuable. So it's it's work like anything else. I love email marketing. And I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon. I think that the email list, and when I compare that to the SMS list, the SMS list, Douglas, is the VIP super fans. They're the ones that would buy your merch. They're the ones that would go to a meetup. They're the ones that'll order 10 copies. They're the ones that are willing to submit their proof of purchase to get a bonus before a book's even out. Yeah. I just love the section on email. You're right. uh, Everyone thinks the cure to their online ailment is more leads. That if somehow you just continue to add leads to the top of your funnel, 
The middle and bottom will work themselves out somehow. Good luck with that. You need as much purpose and strategy, if not more so, to turn an internet lead into an appointment as you do capturing them in the first place. This is from the section on uh, email marketing. And you say it's so important, but most companies are doing it very poorly. Again, let me just uh, quote, if you want to stop chasing leads and start attracting clients, make it a priority to level up your email marketing game. I find that an alarming number of people, even the ones who do send mass emails, don't truly understand just how impactful they can be. I want to give the listeners a tip. It's going to seem really obvious here. But you say, uh, it's on page 160. Each time I research, compose, and send a mass email, I make sure it falls into one or both of these buckets. (laughs) Chris, what is it? Yeah. Well, it's got to be either educational or entertaining. I think if you if if I were to only say one bucket, I would say interesting. Right. And and what I mean by that is without clicking through. So your your content marketing, your video, your blog post, your podcast that you're wanting me to go listen to or watch or read, that's great. But is there any value if I don't? Is the, is the email awesome? without Mm -hmm. clicking through. So I always think about that. Is it an email that I'd want to get? But when when emails are, so think about it, like a real estate agent will be like, well, my listing's educational. Like, no, people don't want to be educated about the fact that you have a new listing. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? But you can turn the story of that listing into something that does have mass appeal and you can sort of PS if you're looking for a cool property that has a pool like the one I just talked about. Right. You know, so it's it's not overly difficult, but yeah, I, I think educational or entertaining. And so it has to either be funny or serious or helpful or, you know, basically it has to be good content. Yeah. <laughs> well, wait a minute. No, no, I thought... I always hear this word blast when I'm talking to companies. It's always mm-hmm. a tell, you know, like in poker. They go, oh, we do email blasts. It tells me right off the bat they're not sending something educational or entertaining. It's all about themselves and their products and services. And, and then they say it doesn't seem to work. Therefore, email doesn't work. Ah! Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's jump to the, to the last part of the book, uh, the billion-dollar sales script. I want to quote from uh, page 167 where you write, Your job on the phone when talking to leads is actually very simple. To get the person more emotionally excited than the cost during the time you have their attention. You have to be so enthusiastic about the product you sell that you get them above the buying line. Then, and only then, do you close. Talk about uh, the importance of enthusiasm. Yeah. Well, I mean, my coach said I-A-S-M, which is the the ending of the word, Mm -hmm. stands for I am sold myself. Yes. Because if you're, and and it isn't just that you're enthusiastic about your product because it's, you know, sort of God's gift to man. It's that you're enthusiastic when your product is God's gift to man to the person that you're in front of or that you're talking to. So, you don't have to be like overly chipper when somebody's not a good fit, mm-hmm. but you have got to be able to sort of sit up in your seat and kind of crank it up a little bit when somebody is. They should feel it coming from your bones 
that you know that what you offer is the solution to a problem that they have because when they can feel it, it's really impactful. Your job is to get people more emotionally excited than the cost during the time you have their attention. And to get people emotionally excited, you have to be emotionally excited. So there's very, very few salespeople that are at the top of their game that are not at least confident or enthusiastic in their delivery. So let's talk about the conversion code MECCA, as you describe it. It's it's high quality leads and fast Mm -hmm. response times, which we've talked about, plus lengthy sales calls. So Talk about digging deep, you know, how, how you actually accomplish that, that third thing of, of a lengthy sales call. Sure. So the science behind this and the research is fascinating, but basically top salespeople are talking price and pitching around the 45-minute mark, and bottom and average salespeople are pitching at like the 12 to 15-minute mark. And the calls where an appointment is booked on a cold call, it's five minutes, 50 seconds, when you know when it's not a, a call being booked on an appointment, it's like a three minute call. So talk time matters. Conversations create customers. Mm-hmm. What people typically screw up is they've got more of like a application. So when you know when do you need to be out of the house, and what's your budget, and what's the most important feature in your next home, and do you have a loan already, and do you have a realtor already, right? Every company sort of asks those types of qualifying questions. Mm -hmm. What great salespeople do, which extends the talk time, is they just ask follow-ups every time they get an answer. So uh, what's your time frame for moving? We need to be out in six months. Why six months? Because we're dealing with something that's a challenge. Well, if you don't mind me asking, you know, what is it? Well, my stepdad has this disease. It's like, okay, well, I'm, uh, you know, I don't want you to deal with a stressful real estate transaction while you're dealing with something that stressful too. Mm -hmm. So we'll make sure that um, there's as as little communication from your side needed as possible. Like that, the way that conversation and the tone of it changes based on me simply digging deeper, asking follow-ups is very different. Mm -hmm. Um, So say, what's what's the, you know, what's your budget? Oh, 500,000. How'd you come up with that number? Just that you, one question. Yeah. Separates you. come you. up with that? Yeah. Are your wife and you on the same page with that number? Mm-hmm. Right? What is the month, like pop quiz, what's the monthly payment going to be based on that number? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that is how you kind of, and it's just my buddy, Phil M. Jones, a great author. You probably oh, yeah. interviewed him. Yeah. Yeah, I have. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. I, uh, I just messaged him. What I sometimes do is when I see an author I've interviewed mentioned in a book, mm-hmm. I take a picture of it and I send it to him and say, hey, check this out. And uh, he sent a message back, says you all are doing a, a workshop pretty soon. Yeah, we are. We're doing a workshop, kind of a conversion code day one with a big marketing focus, mm-hmm. exactly what to say day two with a big focus on conversations and sales. Oh. And, th- you know, the word Phil uses is curiosity. Uh-huh. You know, like, if you're naturally curious, so it, it, it is uncomfortable for many people, Douglas, to, if somebody says, when are you moving? Six months. It's very, it's much more normal to say, and what's your budget? It's not normal to say, how'd you come up with six months? It, you have to be able to answer you have to be able to respond to the answer to a question with another question. Mm-hmm. 
And, and the way that you do that is curiosity. And until you get to the bottom of that point, you shouldn't move on to the next question. So I just think if, if there's a way to kind of sum it all up and, and one thing to remember, it's just like, be curious about the person's scenario that's in front of you and everything else will work itself out. Yeah. Let me ask you a question about another topic here that has big implications for marketing content, but it's actually in the latter part about talking to the the customer mm-hmm. or the prospect. And can you talk about, uh, this is in the section on the perfect sales pitch, and you're a big acronym fan, I know. What is FBT? FBT, which you say is rarely used. Mm-hmm. Yeah. FBT is feature, benefit, tie down. And an FBT is uh, the way that you do a sales pitch. So you would say, what are my four to six best features, right? So in my example with my company curator, you know, maybe it's website, Facebook ads, email marketing, content marketing, like those are sort of the features that you're purchasing. The benefit to the person is different than the feature and then getting them to agree that there's a benefit of that feature before you move on to the next one is what's called a tie down. And that is really what's missing. Mm -hmm. So like I was working with this real estate team a couple of weeks ago and they said, you know, what is the feature? Uh, And they said, well, we have a partnership with Zillow. That's really hard to get. It's exclusive, this exclusive partnership with Zillow. And I said, okay, well, the, the, the benefit is that most people look for homes nowadays on Zillow. So the fact that we have this partnership means that the benefit to you is that people reach out to us when they want to look at a listing. It's the largest. And then the tie down would be like, did you guys use Zillow at all when you found your last home? Yes. Okay, great. So you understand how powerful it is. Mm-hmm. Next feature. So it's, it's, it's basically getting them to agree. Because if you just go feature, 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 you're actually every feature that you're going and, and telling them without kind of tie, the tie-down component, uh, it's actually, again, unconverting them. Right. There's a great chart on uh, page 196. It talks about how the length of a sales pitch impacts the close rate. And you, you keep going, they keep going uh, feature, 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 feature. <laughs> You've lost it's, un- it. it's uninterrupted, right? Yeah. Like I get it. It's a pitch and you might be able to give a good three or four straight minutes about <laughs> what you do, right. but you're literally, it looks like a ski slope. Yes. Yes. And then I had to laugh because I'm the father of a daughter. You said this even works in your uh, personal life, Chris. You write, you might say to your daughter, Maya, I need you to clean your room. Now that's the feature. Okay. You then say, you will get your phone back once it's done. That's the benefit. You want your phone back, right? <laughs> Tie down. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it comes in handy. I mean, yes, I, I have kids, and you know the benefits in that scenario. It's what's the benefit to them? Yes, we want their room clean. Yes, we want their laundry folded. Yes, we want <laughs> right. But you, you really have to think that through, and then. By the way, it still doesn't work half the time, just to be clear, <laughs> depending yeah. on their age. Yeah. I, now my daughter's uh, in her 20s, so we, she, she's she's uh, moved out uh, some years back. But as I look at that and I thought, man, I wish it had been that easy. <laughs> yeah. And actually, she still has her room at the house trashed completely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she never cleaned it. Now, the, one other thing I want about FBT, talk about how adding fear actually helps. 
Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people buy because they're afraid that they, you know, they're not going to, it's like a bruise versus a bell and whistle, right? So instead of saying our website's great, you should buy it. You would say your website sucks. You should buy ours. <laughs> so, you know, that's, it's, and I'm obviously being hyperbolic there, but like that is the mindset that fear like, so it's not so much about like, hey, we're great and we negotiate deals and we communicate, like we're great at communicating. Like when you work with us, we're going to communicate quickly anytime you have a question. Yeah, that's, that's one way to position that. Another way would be the average real estate agent takes more than a week to follow up with people. You don't want to be frustrated when you have a question and you can't get in touch with somebody, do you? Mm -hmm. yeah. That is the same feature presented sort of through the optimist or the pessimist. Right, right, right. So let me just ask one last question uh, from the book, and that's from the bonus chapter that you have. See, even, even in the book, you're over-delivering. Elaborate on the following, please. One of the best things about modern marketing and sales is the data. One of the worst things about modern marketing and sales is the data. Yeah, it's the gift and the curse. So there's better attribution and tracking than ever. But we, what we've uncovered through all of that attribution and tracking is that attribution is impossible. Not to say that it can't be possible in many cases, but I would argue that ultimate attribution is impossible because the other thing I've learned, Douglas, when you ask people how they found out about you, mm -hmm. they don't always say the answer of the channel they came in through. So I'll look at somebody in the database that it was a Facebook ad and I'll say, hey, how'd you, how'd you find out about us? They say, oh, I listen to your podcast for last year. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, I remember once years ago uh, when we did more advertising, we had this uh, law firm as a client, mm -hmm. and they would—they were very good about trying to ask people to call in because they saw the TV commercials. They'd say, hey, how'd you hear about us? Mm -hmm. And the overwhelming answer was yellow pages yep. because that's they had one sitting in their lap when they were calling. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, again, unless you kind of get elbow grease and ask every single person, but even if you ask them, it won't be proper. So all I'm getting at would be, you know, don't analyze yourself to death. You know, the, in sports, there's a lot of fans that are frustrated because they're using analytics that say, take the pitcher out because he, yes, he has a perfect game, but it's the, it's the seventh and a half inning and he's thrown 84 pitches. So it's time to come out of the game. That's using just analytics. And you talk about your gut. Yeah, use your gut. If you're the manager, like, you know, the guy's <laughs> killing it. The catcher says, leave him in. The pitcher says, I'm good. Like, it's, it's not just data that should say which player you should draft. One, one of the sportscasters I love listening to, his name's Colin Cowherd. He said, manalytics, not just analytics, right? Like, look at the person. Don't just look at the paper that says how fast they ran the 40. Watch them run the 40. Like, you, like, so that I think is sort of relevant in marketing because if I go into Google Analytics or if I go into Facebook Insights or if I go into Active Campaign and look at all the data that I could use to segment my list, it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So what I challenge people to do is just pick five KPIs and go after those and get those all in one dashboard 
and be okay with the fact that you don't need to know which mobile operating system and browser <laughs> the person came in through. Yeah, this is a great chapter. I think it'd be very helpful for folks. And uh, one thing you write here is one problem with digital marketing data is that it can be spun in a way that makes it sound like things are going great, even when they're not. And you told a story about how you you know were looking at this data from some other uh, supplier or client had, and uh, it just it completely obscured what was actually happening. But just so people get a sense of this last chapter, to keep you from wasting time, I've put together a list of the analytics and metrics that actually matter mm-hmm. <laughs> and what you should change or not change based on what you find. The very next section is, section is website metrics that matter. So it was mm-hmm. very, very refreshing. You know, it's sort of like uh, very uh, honest and, and realistic, but yet can give folks – it's better to look at a few things than to try and look at everything. Like, Well, know. when you make a data-driven di- marketing decision, your marketing performs better. It's just that 42% of people never use data when making decisions. Mm-hmm. So that, that's not an option. So for the, for the geeks out there, like absolutely, like A-B test, use Google Optimize, do all of that stuff. But for the average Joe – uh, it, it actually is not that important. Yeah. So, Chris, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? That chasing leads is bad for both sides. Mm. That people don't want to be chased and you shouldn't want to chase. It sucks for both of us. <laughs> so let's make a deal and stop doing that. Amen. Amen. So, Let's give the listener one thing they could do today, just maybe like until the book arrives, to put in action one of the ideas from the book. Yeah, that's a great one. I I think one of the things people loved in the first book is like the ability to ask a question on social media and get comments galore Mm -hmm. because people sort of don't understand like the best way to sort of write a post. So if people want to do something right now, go to Facebook and ask people how old they were when they got married, how old they were when they bought their first home. How many states have they lived in? And when you give people those sort of quick and easy uh, things to answer, it's amazing how many more people do. Why do you think that is? Because it's not a why. It's a, it's a when. It's a how. How old were you? 31. I know how old I was when I got <laughs> married. I know how many states I've lived in. I know how many homes I've owned. Uh-huh. You know, like I don't like social media moves real quick. So if, 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 the, if the alternative is, what do you think about Elon Musk buying Twitter? I got to kind of take a few deep breaths and grab the keyboard to answer that. Right, right, right. If you say, do you own a Tesla? Uh-huh. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> That's a very, very quick and easy question to answer. But P.S., I will soon. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, so when you become the CEO of Twitter, they'll give you a Tesla? Is that how it works? Yes. I think I'm going to be the CRO, not the CEO, Ah. but I I will be the chief revenue officer uh, and I'll be happy to do it. Okay, cool. Excellent. So are there any um, recent or upcoming books that you recommend or uh, looking forward to see coming out? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I love uh, a handful of books that are really good that no one's ever heard of. So I'm going to give people one book. It's it's a hybrid between business and culture. It's called Hatching Twitter. It's actually one of my favorite books that I've ever read. It is the behind the scenes account written by a journalist named Nick Bilton. Thousands of phone calls, interviews, tens of thousands of documents. He, He did the work here. 
It is a fascinating tale. I think it's actually going to become a TV show. But if anybody watched The Social Network Mm -hmm. and enjoyed that, Hatching Twitter is is sort of the Twitter version. And it is really, really interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hatching Twitter, a true story of money, power, friendship, and betrayal. Boy, I think – and and there's so much attention paid to Twitter now – uh, that it'll come back. Looks like this was published in uh, 2013. Yeah, I didn't know about that one. Interesting. Okay, well, super. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including uh, the books you've mentioned, your your previous interview, uh, 322 episodes ago, your site, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. And now a word to you, dear listener. I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Chris and congratulate him on the second edition of this book and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Send him a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or, or, or go to his website, sign up for the newsletter. Guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners and not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so really, really, really ridiculously good looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is The Conversion Code, Stop Chasing Leads and Start Attracting Clients, second edition. The author is Chris Smith. Chris, thank you very much for joining us again on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. I am going to be back. I am going to book that next call. I will tell you, I, I already know what the conversion code three is going to be about. Oh, can, can you tell us now? Yeah, it's the conversion code web three. Web three is NFTs. Web three is blockchain. Web three is crypto. Web three is vFriends. Web three is board apes. Like the, the, the marketing lessons that I'm learning watching that space uh-huh. are amazing. And and there's a difference. Think about this. There's a difference between having a Facebook group or a following on Twitter than there is having an NFT that people paid money for that people are checking the value of. So there's the upside that there's now all of a sudden like kind of like a financial upside to supporting creators like me and you. There can be. So I I think it's going to be fascinating. I actually think similarly to how email and text are very different. I think the way that you do marketing and sales web two versus web three will be that different. Oh, even more so than web one and web two. Correct. Yeah. Well, I hope we don't have to wait until 2028 for that third edition. You won't, but think about this, Douglas, using HubSpot, using MailChimp, right? Being Gary V's fan, we didn't have any upside to any of that. Mm-hmm. Now we can. Think yeah. about how passionate a community might get. If people want to look at a little bit of what's happening, check out Rally. It's, it's a coin for creators. It's a very fascinating space. The conversion code three will probably be about Web3, which I think is, is nice and ironic. Excellent. Well, thanks again for uh, for joining us, and I hope to speak to you long before 2028. Awesome. Thanks, Douglas. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. 
For a free copy of the book, All Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Mm -hmm.